Hello and welcome to This Is Your Life Path, a podcast where I sit down with tabletop game designers and we have a chat about all of the things that have influenced and inspired them away from the tabletop world. I'm your host Kayla, I'm a game designer myself and I publish as Ratwave Gamehouse. I do games all about connection and alienation. Once upon a time I released the story of a story, a solo journaling game where you play a story born around the campfire and document your transformation and journey as you pass through the mouths and arms of many tellers. Now to jump into the episode and introduce today's guest. Today's guest is the wonderful and many, many talented Matt Sanders. How are you doing today, Matt? Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you for coming on the pod. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can introduce myself. Hi, uh, I'm Matt Sanders. I um, publish RPG stuff myself as Sealed Library, um, but then I also work for two different RPG publishers in different roles, so I wear quite a lot of different hats depending on what day you catch me on. <laughs> what hat have you had on today? If you don't mind saying. Today has been the relationship manager hat for Rowan Rook and Deckard. And specifically, that's been about getting GMs to run games at conventions um, and how we find good GMs, uh, how we compensate them fairly, how we organize those games, all that, all, all that, all that fun stuff. Ah, that sounds interesting and you know, useful. So... I'll probably kick off with the first question. Where did you grow up originally? Um, a mix of North Wales and Chester, uh, where I live uh, now via a circuitous route. Um, my parents owned a business in North Wales when I was quite young. When I was kind of nine or ten, um, that ceased to be a thing, and we moved back to uh, Chester, where my parents had lived previously. But I am. I'm the first kid in my family born outside the Midlands in several generations. I like my parents moved away from where their roots were. Ah, that's interesting. I was born in Chester actually, but I moved out of there when I was two, so I don't really have any memories of the place. Yeah, no, no attachment beyond a birth certificate with a, with some words on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Basically, <laughs> um, when you were like, what's what's Chester? like to grow up in and i guess what's um, because i guess nine is enough of an age where like i also moved from where i moved to in the midlands uh to essex when i was like eight and that's just enough of an age that i feel i have a bit of memories of before and after for me i think chester was always very limiting like as soon as i was kind of old enough to take an active interest in stuff like music or art or games or anything like that chester was really a small town with not much to offer and i spent most of my time and resources trying to be elsewhere um and then it's it's been quite a process to come back here in my 30s and discover actually i quite like a lot of things but chester is now that i'm older and more independent and my priorities have shifted yeah no that is really interesting do you feel like that sense of coming back to a place um, and reevaluating your relationship with it? Do you think that is something that has informed your work at any point? Um, 
No, I don't think it's been a, a like a huge thing. I think in terms of places I've lived and how that might have informed my work, I think often the absence of games even existing as like a visible hobby, um, especially when I lived in, um, like when I lived in Vietnam and Malaysia and Egypt there, there is this enormous linguistic burden on learning to play games that is really compounds the fact that the dominant well-known RPGs are these huge books. Mm. Then when you're asking people to do that in their second language, the task is even more onerous. And I think that really informed a lot of my feelings about wanting games to be smaller and more sort of easy to pick up and read and play in a, a quicker fashion where like you can do that in a second language more readily as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's obviously the most obvious way places informed my work. That's interesting. Yeah, how place and I guess the context in which you're introduced to things and needing to translate yeah, both exactly. in a in a literal sense, um, or if you're talking about dealing with something in your second language, but I guess also just translating the ideas to the context you meet them in. Hmm. So. When you were growing up, what did what did you want to be when you were younger? <laughs> uh, this, I feel like this is a question where you're sort of um, poking at an iceberg. In that, I don't really <laughs> like the um, English construction to be plus a job. Um, mm. Like when um, when I was teaching and training, I never really liked to say I'm a teacher. I always used to say I teach. Um, like, I don't like that construction where you link identity to the, the job. Um, and I've all, I'm able to articulate that as an adult. But even as a kid, I was always like, well, what do you mean? What do I want to be? Like, uh, why do I have to do one thing? Um, so for me, that's a very limiting construction. And I know that that idea really goes back to when I was a kid. I sort of didn't really grasp the idea of choosing one thing to be. Um and that's been borne out over my life. I've done a bunch of different things, and I, I think that probably won't cease. <laughs> that's yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I think I was talking to like my therapist recently, um, and I guess talking a lot about like the idea of feeling like I was not yet who I was supposed to be or whatever. And I was saying like, but I'm aware that's just me carrying loads of baggage because I don't actually believe that any job I do will define me. I don't even necessarily believe that even the way I express creativity, because I've expressed that in lots of different ways, is this thing. It's just this sense of baggage I'm carrying. It's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I also do think that um, that's a really wanky answer to what did you want to be when you grow up, <laughs> is to give this sort of, like, you know, highfalutin, conceptual, philosophical answer. But, like, that, that feeling of not sort of liking that construction definitely went right back to me as a kid not knowing how to answer that question to when an adult asked me to now me being able to give a more like developed answer. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Like that, that hmm. deep held sense of, of unease of that. Hmm. Um, so yeah, what are some of the things you've done? Cause I know you, and you just mentioned um, having done teaching uh, to 
say that rather than having been a teacher or whatever. Um, what other things have you done throughout your life? Um, well, so I think a lot of people that meet me are surprised, especially at this stage in my life, are surprised that my degree was in marketing or brand management specifically. Um, and that that's what I did after university. Um, was I worked in marketing and account management. Um, that was never a good fit. That never that never worked for me. Um, and so the shift to education wasn't especially intentional. It was more of like an escape um, for me and my partner at the time it was an escape from jobs we didn't like. Um, but then I kind of found my feet there. Um, and then specialized within that, I ended up doing lots of um, like out of teaching, really more into like training. I know that's a very muddy distinction, but like I went from kind of classroom teaching into corporate training where it was much more soft skills or um, like with language mixed in there um, in a corporate environment. And that was quite different. I'd class it as two things, like how I started out in education, and how I finished were quite different roles. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, and then and then moved into RPGs in a bumpy fashion. <laughs> so maybe this is me uh, tying things together in a way that feels too neat. And please reject what I'm about to say. If you do, it does feel like even marketing as a bad fit is in some ways about communication, teaching in a lot of senses about communication, and then as a game designer a lot of what you you do is about communicating certain ideas and possibilities do you do you look at those things as connected do you feel like you've carried um lessons learned from these these different roles into the space you currently exist in oh for sure um i think like for, for within rpgs there is this very traditional um interaction pattern you know the rpg um the gm to play, group of players paradigm where there's a hierarchy, there is a power relationship, certain things quite explicitly belong to the GM and certain things quite explicitly belong to the player. And then you have often less well-defined, but an interaction with the book or the text in that where certain things belong to the book or the game, which is a debatable boundary. Um, and that's a very rigid interaction pattern, I think, in most trad games. Um, in education, varying interaction patterns and being very deliberate and thinking about interaction patterns between people and how groups are structured in order to get specific outcomes and to think about both product and process is really sort of a daily thing in education you know if i'm if i was writing a workshop thinking about those dynamics was a core part of my job and i definitely bring that over to rpgs i think you can see that those are the things that i tinker with most in most of the things i've put out and that's definitely because i've got experiences of thinking about that and doing it from education so yeah you're not you're not projecting or making a link there but <laughs> there it's really like on the nose actually cool yeah i it's interesting you're saying that like that, that very rigid idea because i do feel i have met some teachers who perceive 
their role in teaching probably is very rigid of thinking, oh, I'm the receptacle of knowledge. I mean, and that's, you know, there's bad GMs and there's bad teachers and there's bad milkmen and there's bad (laughs) candle makers, right? Like whatever profession you pick, there's people who have rigid ideas about it that would benefit from being shaken up. Um, Yeah, I was just thinking because I've often thought of what I've done in teaching as being very deliberately like rejecting um yeah that kind of rigid perspective as well because i also i work as a teacher currently so who in who first introduced you to rpgs were you introduced by a person or did you make that discovery yourself a bit of both in that one of the things that um my family did when i was younger is we used to sell things at like what people would now probably call a Comic-Con, but at the time would tended to be called like a memorabilia fair. Um, so you'd get signings from like, you know, Star Wars cast or comics artists, and we'd sell like merch and memorabilia there. Um, but what that means is that we had RPG stuff in the house that I then read. So it wasn't bought for me, and it wasn't like my dad played these games but the books were in the house in order to be sold and I would read some of them and then some of them would be sold, but, and I'd keep some of them and that kind of shifted. So there wasn't really like a hard introduction. I started reading um, RPGs before I sort of really knew what they were. Um, Just like I encountered lots of things, board games and Star Wars toys and because they were in our house to be sold. Um, and my first memories of playing them are me trying to figure them out with my friends in a very, f- and again, I think this speaks to who I am as a designer and player now in a very flat hierarchical way where we all had the book and shared it out and tried to figure out how to play the game and didn't have like a fixed role. Um, and because that's how I first played, finding out as an adult that people started out in that very rigid power dynamic was strange to me because I simply did not. It was always a flatter, more collaborative experience um, right from the start. Yeah, that makes sense when you encounter that without necessarily um, having like the introduced and set structure that is conveyed by like certain scenes. Yeah, and it was never through, you know, I never went to a club or a shop or a like a place where I met other people who played these games, I kind of led on, well, I've got this thing and it's got loads of cool pictures in it and I understand about a third of it. Can we can we try and have a go at it? Um, and so it was very, very DIY. Um, and it's only like then 10 years later that I'm like, oh yeah, maybe most people didn't get introduced to games like this. Maybe most people had somebody teach them or went to a club or a store and, and played them with a group where they were more like an apprentice. Yeah. And I can see in your work how it could be approached, like how it makes sense to approach as this flat structure, as playing things out, but without maybe what I imagine was without presumably the burden of people only understanding a third of it because of the density and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I can distinctly remember in a D and I couldn't tell you which D and D book, but I know the passage it was where it was about constructing castles and it gave you the stuff to work out 
how much stone it required to build something based on the radius. And at that point, I had not learned that maths. And I remember just being utterly baffled by this section within the book where, and I didn't have somebody teaching me how to do it. And that section, I was just like, we're going to ignore that. (laughs) And now that's very relevant to the way I make games is to be like, well, you can just ignore this. The game is not the boss. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So were you a big reader when you were younger? I assume if you're just reading the things that sort of around the house as as curios almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always read a lot. Um, And I think I had a, a very typical introduction to the genre. You know, my dad had... I remember reading my dad's copy of The Hobbit and The Lord of Rings, you know, that he owned and had owned since he was young, and I read those. Um, And I still have a graphic novel of The Hobbit that I was given as a child before I was old enough to read The Hobbit on my own. Um, And I think that's a very typical introduction for a British man into liking fantasy is Lord of the Rings and Star Wars movies and that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, I was always a big reader, and then as I've got older and branched out on my own, it's got more kind of eclectic, I guess. That makes sense. And so you still, you know, a big reader today. And obviously some people, like I, I count myself and sort of find themselves struggling to read as they've gotten older. Um, yeah, I, I may, maybe I wouldn't use the word big reader anymore, but I think I would use wide reader. Like mm. I think that I read a lot of different things from a lot of different sources. Um, and it's not especially structured or organized. Um, it's quite organic. And so a wide reader would be a better phrase. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think as I've got older, I struggle to read as much, but I still do still do okay, I think. And it, go, it's, it comes in peaks and waves, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Within that, like, you know, eclectic range, have you ever noticed things like conscious or unconscious influences on your sort of, I guess, euphorial voice, like your approach to, to prose? Um, hmm. I think my, my approach to my work, yeah, there's definitely things I've noticed in how I read, or I guess how others expect me to read that, um, have influenced my work. Like I've always struggled with, like, I can't keep up with new releases. Like, I never read a book because it's just come out. That, that like, isn't how I engage with media generally, actually. Um, and so I've always found people... Uh, like, when I first moved back to Chester, I tried going to this library book club, um, but everybody just wanted to talk about new releases, and I found it utterly alienating because I hadn't even heard of the books because I just didn't engage with it like that. Um, and I equally, I've never really got along with the idea of like established canons of, oh, you have to read this because it's an important work. I've always been like, well, why? It looks, I'm not interested in it. Um, and I think that that appears in my work in that I don't think honoring new or important or canonical is, is something we should especially do and that shows up in my work and that's definitely from it's an unconscious habit within reading that then has become a theme in my work as i've learned 
to articulate myself more clearly. Mm. Do you feel maybe like within your work and your approach to your work, a lot of things have been about a growing sense of self-awareness and being able to articulate deeper held feelings as you've got older? Um, so when I first started writing RPGs, I published uh, mostly just as my name. Um, and once under another name that I don't use anymore, and I mostly published stuff. Um, derivative it would be a harsh word, but fairly sort of generic OSR slash D&D stuff. And I burnt out on that after a while, and then I very I was much more deliberate about what I wanted to do with my work when I established Sealed Library as a name. Um and there, that idea of sort of deconstructing or varying those paradigms of interaction in the group or what constitutes an authority on knowledge within the game or like how um, what you have done in your game is recorded. Those are all deliberate themes I wanted to put into my work and draw a boundary around what my work was going to be. Um and I don't think I've ever really thought about that in terms of self-discovery. I've always thought about it in terms of it being about what I think games could be and usually are not. Like I see, to me, it feels like a missed opportunity for games to be more true to how people tell stories in real life rather than sort of spreadsheet-driven things. Um, but I think you're probably right. I think there is an element of self-discovery in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever noticed when you, if you have ever looked back on, I guess, the, the things you published before establishing Sealed Library, you maybe don't hold in as high regard. Have you ever noticed sort of shades of that theming and focus on sort of collaboration and democratization of knowledge? I don't think they're there. Okay. I think that they represent before I... They were content for games rather than games themselves. Um, and I think that that's what they were. They were content for games. They fitted within the box. And I think part of why I burnt out on that kind of thing was that I wasn't suited to it. Uh, like it, I was trying to work within a within a framework that actually wasn't where I could do my best work. And when I realized the box was there, so to speak, that was part of what helped me come out of burnout was I was like, well, hang on, I'm working within these parameters when actually what I want to do is redefine the parameters as my work. And I think that was a... Um, so, yeah, it's there in that I didn't realise those limitations were there until I'd burnt out on them. Mm. That's that's really fascinating to me also. Like, I guess the approach with then the work you started publishing as Sealed Library is so sort of conscious of what you're... that focus. Yeah, when I when I decided to come back, I was really like, well, what do I want to do? What, what do... what... like... C contribute is perhaps a self-aggrandizing word, but the question was like, what do I want to contribute to RPGs? Um, you know, whether anyone rem will remember that I contributed it is another thing, but that, but at least that's like what I'd like to try and bring as a contribution. Yeah, of course. And the 
the effort and the attempt is in itself a, a contribution regardless of wider I don't know narratives mm. or memories so you're talking you mentioned briefly about the the focus on games should be or the games you make should be resembling more how people actually tell stories and that was the thing I noticed with uh, so much of your work I'm thinking of sort of have you heard of the beast while we wait for death even um what on the border where we sail beyond and probably loads more is this big focus on memory and how our memories shape our experiences and how memories change in our tellings and differences um i guess i wanted to ask more broadly about memory like what is it about memory and a oral storytelling tradition of memory i suppose often thinking in terms of pubs and stuff that so appeals to you if that's not too big a i question. think i think it's more a response um for me when i look at um how big rpgs do things you know i'm talking things where three books is the base game or two you know one very large book and then you probably have multiple supplementary books everything is encoded and remembered in a way where the game believes that this can be done accurately right it can be accurate it can be balanced it can be fair it can be unfair and therefore the exploits that you get up to in the game could be encoded like via a log via a log of actions and their numerical outcomes. And the more I think about that, the more that seems just absolutely baffling and bizarre to me as what is the output of a storytelling game? Um, you know, an experience that's notionally about collaborative storytelling. You know, this is a phrase that gets thrown around even in these big numerical RPGs. But like stories are not remembered the same by everybody. Mm. And so it's more a response to, well, I just don't think this, everything can be perfectly encoded numerically and we can represent things through that and write down an accurate version of what happened. I don't think that is how adventure stories work. Uh, yeah, I think I adventure stories are embellished and misremembered and forgotten and recombined and that's how adventure stories are in the real world where not even just in oral literature in written form as well uh, i don't think that if you read about the the exploits of somebody you might consider adventurous you know like a burton or a speak or a livingston the idea that their diaries as a primary source are an accurate record of what they did are they bollocks no right like they're absolutely filtered through one person's lens of how that was done and that's what i think games are more fun as is like an actual storytelling experience and part of that is looking back and saying well okay how are we telling this story now how are these things remembered yeah i mean i so i'd maybe think that that's almost true of all sort of stories and experiences in a way um 
I know I feel lately a lot I've been doing a lot of like looking back over my own life and piecing together things past like sort of blurry spots and asking other people's accounts of things they remembered and experienced and I'm realizing that like I don't know even the perception I have of my own life is is not an accurate lot like even that is an impossibility at the mm. most sort of inner level yeah and even the, when, when you learn something about yourself it can recontextualize a memory mm. where the actual events have not changed because obviously not the events have transpired but what you feel about those events or what you think they meant can shift. Um, and that's very true of adventure stories as well. Right. Like, and I, I want them to, I want them to reflect that. I want them to be stories rather than these sort of like spreadsheet driven number crunching things. Um, and so it, memory and oral storytelling are, I'd say outcomes of that response to games that encode as a log. Um, yeah, that makes, yeah, that's just super fascinating. I guess jumping here to just a completely different topic, but I guess going through my list, um, does music play much of a part in your process? Do you find yourself writing to music? Do you need to write in silence or to things that are undistracting? Or do you ever find yourself like trying to key into certain emotions or feelings? Um, I need to work in a, an environment with stimuli. Um, so I can quite happily work in a busy coffee shop, for instance. If I'm at home, um, I share an office space uh, with my wife. And so generally speaking, if we're both in it, that's sufficient. But if I'm on my own, I absolutely have music on. But that's more about establishing like a baseline level of stimuli that means I can focus. Um, I think the only thing I've released where music played uh, and a very active, conscious part in the process was the ballad of Johnny Candlefingers, um, where you know the clue is in the name. <laughs> There's a ballad involved notionally and deliberately trying to have some influences for a fictional ballad um, was the only time I've, I've, I'd say music has played a very active part in the work where I've looked for relevant musical influences, both obvious and less obvious for that project. Mm. And I assume that relates to like the act of balladry there and how things shift and vary in those retellings yeah yeah um but also in a typical kind of lack of respect for genre lots of the stuff in that wasn't wasn't balanced um you know it was more about well this has uh you know no genres only vibes i think was perhaps perhaps kind of captures <laughs> some of that but it was much more about things me finding things that i felt captured some of the setting or the feel of the setting that i wanted to get in there um yeah, no, cool. How much does sort of um, visual art inform your writing during the development process? Like in a lot of Seattle Library games, you, you work with a lot of sort of public domain art. I was wondering when you begin that sort of gathering process, is it often after the writing is complete and you have an idea of what it's going to complement or is it a um, intermingled process? Um. 
It's the other way around. It's that what I want sealed library to be informs the visual art and the process of getting to it. So this deconstruction of process was a very significant thing to sealed library. And therefore I also wanted deconstruction to be a significant part of the look. Um, and I very deliberately early on, I, I made a list of this kind of thing. So I wanted it to like illuminated manuscripts are often the kind of most revered, most precious texts that we have. And essentially, I sort of wanted to smash together a bit of that with a DIY kind of punk zine look. Um, and there, there's deliberate things underlying that, like, okay, that's about disrespecting this canonical work. You know, the idea of cutting up an illuminated manuscript is now heresy. Um, but we have illuminated manuscripts with pages or illustrations missing where they were cut out to paste into other books. That was a thing that the monks who did them did. Um, and then that kind of punk zine aesthetic of recombining things um, like very lo-fi, I wanted to be present. Um, and then that's where the CMYK kind of color scheme comes from as well is if you deconstruct printing what you get to in the modern form is cmy and k roughly there's, there's complexities to it but that's what happens if you deconstruct printing so the themes of what i wanted to do with sealed library then informed the visual style of it um and that's obviously evolved partly in practical terms, when you work with public domain, you have to work with what you can find or have access to. Um, uh, I had to work with my limited skills, um, you know, like a lot of the uh, stuff that I've done where I've laid it out or I've done the art. I am, that's a secondary skill for me that I've learned because I needed to learn it to, to make something happen at all. That wasn't just a Google doc downloaded to a PDF. Um, so yeah, there's, there's deliberateness there, there's constraints from practical things and ability. Um, but yeah, it's not visual art first, it's the other way around. It's themes and ideas first, visual art comes from that. That Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's it's funny you say about like all the constraints informed it, because in a way I feel like working within your own constraints and skill limitations can really reinforce that sort of DIY punk aesthetic often mm. Mm, yeah yeah you end up having to do something i'll call it low skill in that it's like well this is what i can do and therefore it's going to look like this kind of collage low color pixelated like those things are going to come out because that's what my skill level is but steer into the skit <laughs> yeah Do you do, or have you ever done any um, writing outside of RPGs, either in, I suppose, presumably in like a professional capacity when you were working in marketing, but also any fiction writing ever? Um, I mean, I don't have the discipline for fiction or the earnestness for poetry, I would say. Um, like, those are, are forms that I enjoy and respect and kind of perhaps aspire to doing, but I, I don't, I guess I have written things down 
um, that could be, you know, our fragments of fiction or poetic bits of something, but that's never been like, it's never been nearly so focused or deliberate. Um, in terms of writing other things professionally, yeah, there's lots of corporate soft skills workshops um, out there with, well, I say with my name on. They don't have my name on. They have the name of an organization on, but with my fingerprints on, I guess, um, or teaching materials. But again, all organization specific um, and probably phased out of use simply through time at this point. Yeah, no, of course, the way time and materials updating. Do you feel... Um you've ever noticed similarities in your writing style between these sort of scoff skills documents and teaching materials um, and your writing there? Or do you feel with the the focus and the, you know, completely different context they're in, your writing style varies? Um, I, I can certainly quote reader response to them that I think shows a similarity. Um, you know, he, here I am in the business of writing games um, where... I leave very deliberate gaps of things that then the group or the reader are supposed to decide. And I can remember um, early on um, when I started working for quite a prestigious teaching organization, um, a couple of people complaining like officially about my materials to um, someone more senior. And then that person read them and were like, well, no, these are great because of these gaps where you've left things that the teacher gets to decide about them. They're not rigid, but there were some teachers, as you mentioned earlier, with very rigid expectations of how things should be done, that they didn't like that I had left certain details deliberately empty, but they thought that was not, they were like, well, how do I know what to do? And I'm like, well, how do I know what your classroom is like when I'm not in it? Mm. So I think there's a common, there's a uniting thing there of I can't tell you what to do because the situation demands something. Um, and I've always felt comfortable with that idea. And not everyone does. Yeah, I, I can completely see that link with design as well. And that is very, very funny to be like, oh, you want me to do to translate this into my own classroom context, which is unique and yeah as a teacher Kayla are you familiar with the term spoon painters I think I I am but only because I've seen you tweet about this it's not one I've actually came across in working oh, so so I should I should explain it then. yeah yeah so, okay. so you know um in a in a kid's classroom uh, which you know I have worked in I've worked with like six to ten year olds before um you might be doing like a puppet show where you use wooden spoons to represent the characters. And there are certain types of teachers who will stay up late and paint the characters on the spoons themselves. And then there's another kind of teachers who get the kids to paint the spoons. And I've always been the one who gets the kid to, kids to paint the spoons. And I feel that that's the point. But it means my materials or my ideas often aren't compatible with the spoon painting teachers. And I think you see the same thing in RPGs. There's that GM who's got this binder where it is written down what the bandit on the highway in the woods has got in his pocket, you know? And 
I could not work with that. I would just decide. And there's very, you can, you can't be both. You can't be both of those things equally. You are more one side of that. Yeah. I remember when I was first doing teacher training, some early feedback I got from observations was you are doing too much. Um, and it was, it came from a place of insecurity of me feeling like, oh, I need to show I know what I'm doing. I need to be doing constant things. And it meant, I don't know, at least in my opinion, I don't think I was serving the needs of the classroom. I was trying to assuage my own insecurity and, um, mm. you know, impress people who d decided whether I got to be a teacher or not. And I could maybe see that impulse in... GMing probably sometimes the feeling like oh I need to be doing oh. stuff I need to know things otherwise people are going to think and yeah for the I mean so I've had this discussion before where we've talked about well are resources for teachers or for students you know are worksheets for teachers or for students and a lot of teachers would tell you that they're for students and I completely disagree they're often there for the teacher to act as a crutch or to help deal with an insecurity or provide stability and a framework for them to navigate the classroom. Same thing's totally true in, in RPGs. Are, are pre-written adventures for players or for GMs? You know, obviously it's for GM that reads them, but the, like the players often have no idea whether the content they encounter has come off the page or out of the head. Like they're not a, and therefore you can remove them. The right person can remove a pre-written thing or a prescribed system from the, they don't need the book if it's in their head or they've got the tools to pull it out of their head. Um, I think that idea translates very well across the two fields. Yeah. And assuaging insecurities is absolutely, absolutely a huge part of it. <laughs> yes. No, I, I... And, and there's nothing wrong with that as well. Like, I would never say to a new GM running a game who feels the need to have all these books, you are doing this wrong. You mm. should not do it like this. I would say to them, you know, are you sure you need this? Perhaps you don't have to do it like this. Perhaps there is an easier way that will take up less of your time and even perhaps be more fun. Like it, it's not a right and wrong thing. It's a what uh, comes back to you, a phrase you used, serving the needs of the classroom, serving the needs of the people serving the needs of the group and, and the people in it. Yeah. And I suppose, obviously, uh, within a, a games playing context, the focus always should be coming back to, like, what's making sure everyone has fun, which is a slightly different but similar focus with classroom, where it's going back to, like, what's helping this class learn, where hmm. I think, I suppose, in a classroom, there's more... Um, it is more correct to get out of your own way and get over things because, I don't know... There's need that. Whereas in a game, it's like you're also a player. Your fun also matters. If if mm. prepping helps you not feel like horribly anxious the entire time, sure, go for it. But consider other possibilities. So, what are you working on at the moment as for sealed library? I suppose because obviously you wear so many different hats. Um, I'm about to launch a Kickstarter for Daggers, Ditches, and Dangerous Things, which I eventually decided not to call D and D and D. <laughs> um, I resisted that temptation and instead mostly referring to it as 3D. Um, uh. Uh, I, th I thought D&D and D was too, too, too on the nose, too uh, lawsuit friendly. Um, oh, yeah, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and that is a tiny, as in single sheet of A4 fantasy adventure system. Um, if it does well enough, um, it will be the world's smallest three book RPG in that there will be a player's book, which is one sheet of A4 folded in half, a monster book, fold one sheet of A4 folded in half, and a DMG, a Dungeon Master's Guide, that's also one sheet folded in half. Um, wonderful. Those, yeah, those two things are kind of the two extra things, the Monster Manual and the uh, Dungeon Master's Book are stretch goals, but like, I, I, think, I think I'll probably get there and it will be the, yeah, the, the smallest three-book RPG in existence. I've seen some of the, uh, the previews um, you've posted on Twitter and things, and it looks like a really, a really gorgeous, gorgeous game. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I worked with um, M.A. Gox um, on We Sail Beyond and Have You Heard About the Beast, and those are visually the things I've done that I liked the most because I felt like he got sealed library and took the ideas and ran with them to a place I never could have got them to. And so with this, it was such an obvious thing to go back to him. I, I, I would struggle to work with another artist or layout person, I think, um, at this point, simply because he gets it. Mm. That feels like um, such a fulfilling so, partnership. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when... When I released We Sail Beyond, some people even said, oh, this is such a good pairing of people like to make this thing. And, and I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> it was, that was, you know, very, uh, very pleasing. And I didn't want it to... In doing a single sheet of A4, I didn't just want it to be a dense wall of text. Yeah. Because in that compression into doing a system in a single sheet of A4 it would be very easy to be like, well, hey, here's two columns of text on each side and it's in size six font. Good luck with that. And I, I did not want that to be what happened at all. And I needed somebody who could make that happen. So what kind of things have influenced 3D in your construction? I mean, obviously, I suppose of the the name and the the free book structure that maybe implies something of a of a response to other games, but I was, I was curious what you yeah. deliberately and maybe unconsciously been, been pulling on or been affected by. So I really like kind of low fantasy um, where, you know, you are not like the greatest warrior that ever lived. You are some guy from a muddy village who goes out on some adventures that he can tell his friends about at the pub. And he might be the hardest guy in the village, but it's not that, like, you never reach the levels of being like a magical demigod, you know? Um, and I like magic is dangerous, magic is unknown. I don't like magic, you know, in a village, if there is a magic user, they're probably the weirdo. Yeah. And, yeah. Like... You know, they're not, it's not commonplace. Um and so I guess from, from games that I enjoy, I think an obvious influence is DCC. Um, I don't think anybody who follows me any amount will have missed that I really like DCC. But also DCC is a giant book you could wedge a door with, and I want to capture some of the kind of fun of that experience in a smaller format. And here 
that's a very small format. Um, I can't recite it from memory, but there is effectively a small poem um, at the beginning of DCC about being a cut purse and a reaver that I would cite as a, yeah, this sets the tone for DCC in a way that I really like, and I want a game that does that with a smaller rulebook on the end of it. Um, then there's probably a very hard-to-credit list of blog posts from across places, some of which may not even exist anymore, um, the authors of some of whom might be thoroughly cancelled but were nevertheless influential on me when I read them, um, that kind of result in a, a conglomerate. Like, I think in 3D, I, I think I would be overselling it if I said it was full of original ideas. I do not think it is. It is a combination of things that I like that are already extant in games. And I think my combination of them is unique and interesting, but it is a combination. It is not a fabrication or a synthesis of new and original ideas necessarily. Yeah, a combination of things, almost a distillation in terms of... Distillation. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, is I'm but I said it, and then I'm like, is that how it's pronounced? Because I realize I've never said it out loud. But into this so so manageable small format, um, I imagine this is the case. But I do want to check: was the idea when you first were thinking of 3D was the focus single sheet of A4? I can get, I want to be able to get everything, or was it you were writing something and realized, oh, this could work in there let's now build towards that um so there's a bigger game um a bigger game i've been writing on and off for a long time that i would say is much more uh, um deliberately original and deliberately different um but it's a big project and i may never finish it and i wanted to do a system i, I wanted to put a system out into the world and that be a thing that i have done as a designer to design a a complete game in that most of the things I design are things you would use with another game or play as a one-off experience. Whereas I wanted to do a much more traditional system, you know? Um, and so then I added this constraint of, okay, well, what if I take this project I've been working on sort of and say, well, hang on, now I've got to try and make this fit on a page of A4 so that I can finish it and release it in a meaningful way. So it, it didn't start out as A4, it became A4. And very few ideas survived the transition. Um, the big game is a totally different game and I will still hopefully finish it one day and 3D is its own thing. Um, right, yeah, it became its own thing in that separation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the other game was car driven by a deck of cards and I couldn't even get the mechanics to fit on a sheet of A4, really. Um, yeah. So it was like, okay, how do I reinvent this to be simpler? And the answer was just D6s. Yeah. You know, that, that is straightforward, approachable. I think there's, with 3D as well, with the monster and kind of a, a adventure toolkit book, I don't think, a, you know, Dungeon Master's Guide is really the right term, but the, the third book how to run the game book um both of those as well are i think deliberately incomplete they're not necessarily intended to be auth authoritative 
you can run a game like this. They're more like, can you run a game like this? Like, is this complete? Do you think it works? Um, and I think you could say that about 3D as well. It's so stripped back that I think somebody who has not played a lot of RPGs might find it very difficult to run, but also might find it very easy to run. Uh, that would be uh, an interesting thing to see. Yeah, I think things being in some sense deliberately incomplete often suggests and creates this like wide space for possibilities to to be filled by the players. Mm, yeah, and then you get into this thing of are they the kind of players or people who feel comfortable doing that at their current level of experience and involvement? Um, and my experience running games is that if someone at the table sets the tone, and that's usually me, people are very rapidly comfortable doing it. And I guess in some ways here, one of the things I want to see is, can I do that with a text, with a text that I have written? Um I can definitely do it when I sit down with a group of people, but that's very different to a piece of paper achieving the same thing on my yeah. behalf. Yeah, can can this paper act as a as a as an envoy for for yourself? Yeah, and and, and in part, I, I don't like. I have a great deal of like disregard for authorial intent, um, and my. Therefore, you end up with this weird circular goal of, can I teach this group via authorial intent to disregard authorial intent and do whatever the hell they want? Yeah. <laughs> and that's a very contradictory thing, but it's where I've wound up. It's interesting. Yeah, it feels like... Um... I was trying to think, oh, isn't there something where like, the eventual thing is an apprentice needs to like defeat a master? And then I'm like, I think that's the Sith. I think I'm thinking of the Sith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I feel this is such wise thing, and I'm like, no, just the Sith. But yeah, I the game is kickstarting, correct, this month? Yeah, it'd be kickstarting. Um, I actually believe, looking down at my taskbar, that I have been sent the final two mock-ups that I need to put into the Kickstarter page to be able to say, hey, this is finished and ready to launch. Um and if I do that tomorrow, it might launch tomorrow. Um, I might launch it on Saturday. We shall see. Yeah. So I assume that means the Kickstarter will probably be out as this episode drops. So please do, if you're listening, head over there because I think this game sounds really exciting um, and I want to see it out in the world. Yeah. So Matt, thank you so much for coming on. I found this a really insightful and interesting conversation that I've enjoyed loads. Where can people find you online, both yourself and Sealed Library? Uh, great. Basically, um, my online presence is quite decorative in that my name nearly everywhere is I am Matt Sanders. Um, and that will find you my personal accounts anywhere. In some places, that'll be private. If you have to request to follow me, that probably means I won't accept it. Um, but for instance, on Twitter, it's public. Um, if you're looking for Sealed Library, that's at Sealed Library on any platforms that it's on. Um, it's sealedlibrary.com. If you want to buy physical stuff, 
and sealedlibrary.itch.io for digital stuff. Thank you. Um, I'm still figuring out my sign-off for this one, and I've not even improvised a funny one today, which I've been trying to do in other episodes, but... So I'll just say goodbye, listeners, and we'll see each other again one day in the glimmering light of the moon.